All right, everybody. I don't know where my guests are. They're supposed to be here. Uh, maybe they're going to call in in a minute and maybe not. So we're going to get started and talk about a very big week. And I know uh, it's a very big week in different ways for all of us. Some of us are having to uh, basically mourn, uh, mourn things that happened uh, to us uh, during the storm. Um, some I know a lot of people are saying they just you know they don't want to even think about this they're not they're not uh, uh, involved in it at all um, and then other people um, are really uh, putting together programs to kind of examine you know what did we learn what happened what what was important what what are the lessons for us and for other people so. You know, we went through basically the past 10 years of a lot of, um, I would call it some, in, in many cases, torture, and then um, many, many learning experiences, um, uh, again, some mourning, but also, uh, in, in some cases, it was a new start for people, and, and not just folks that, uh, not just the other guy, but all of us. So um, while we're waiting for my folks, um, 260-9265, call in and share with me your experiences that you had and the things that you learned and you want other people to know because um, I know every single person that's listening there um, out in the audience is, is, has had some kind of a learning experience. So we're talking 260-9265. Now, here's what um, some of us are doing, and by us – I know you all know by now that I head up a, 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 um, a, a cultural organization called the Creative Alliance of New Orleans. And, um, you know, we wanted closure. We, we really kind of wanted to, to make a statement about this. So, so we planned three events, and I've talked about a couple of them on the air with you all um, in, in the past and and now we're coming to fruition on them. So on Saturday night, we opened up a show um, of murals that were done by people who walked into a shotgun in the Ninth Ward, and they were invited to pick up a brush, pick up some paint, and paint. And so we have these murals. We call them the People's Murals, and they're up there at O.C. Haley Boulevard in Central City. Uh, I say up there because I live below Canal. And um, it is one spectacularly beautiful show. I say I'm getting a call from from the past. Carl Galman, is that the Carl Galman I know, or is that? Yes, seeing this Carl Galman. How are you doing today? Oh my goodness, it's been quite a while since we've talked, and and we were old uh, TV partners. I I don't remember that's how right, many that's I, right. how that's many right. times that I interview you. Relates to Hurricane Katrina. Yes. Uh, I've been following every story in the Advocate and in Times Picayune regarding Hurricane Katrina. But there's no article regarding what happened to the money. $71 billion came into this state from HUD, FEMA, and U.S. Department of Transportation. The U.S. Congress passed a tax free bond program. That generated seven billion eight hundred uh, uh, million dollars. As you take a look at that lower night ward, upper night ward, the Zy Florida area, Jen Kelly, 
uh, Pine Spring Park in New Orleans East. I question whether or not that they spend $2 billion out of $71 billion in those areas. There were seven zip codes that received major and severe damage. And let me give you those zip codes. 70124, which deal with Lakeview. Then in the lower ninth ward, that's 70117. You had 70119, I think. That's your, that's your zip code, right? Correct. 70122. 71262728. And you take a look at the seven zip codes. Six of those zip codes was in predominantly black neighborhoods. And I seriously question where did that money go? And U.S. District Judge Henry Kennedy ruled that the road home program discriminated against African Americans, over 20,000 African Americans. What they was able to do was a 60% pre-storm value on your property if you had more than 50% damage to your property, minus your homeowner's insurance. So folks was left without having enough money to rebuild a home. Still today, you have over 100,000 African Americans have yet to return to this city. Now, President Obama is coming here on Thursday. Now, what you're going to have around President Obama, a bunch of renegades who have not held any firms or workshops to educate the general public about what happened with this money. You can't do nothing in America without money. So you go down to the lower ninth ward in Desire, Florida. Nothing had really changed down there. With all this money, neighbors hit the hardest. So now you're not going to see President Obama going to the lower ninth ward. And you're not going to see him going down to Desire in Florida. So what's happening, we not to stop putting these dog and pony shows on. They're going to take him around to a couple of these new apartment complexes, but take him where the damage that occurred the most. And I'd like to thank you for bringing this issue up, because it's a very important issue. And also, too, we're going to deal with these contracts on the 29th at 10 a.m., at Martin Luther King School, Reverend Joe Recastner is having a forum down there. I've done 10 year research of Hurricane Katrina. I know how much money was received, and I know who received the money. Thank well, you. when you say, wait, Carl, uh, don't don't check out quite yet. Um, so, where where do you think the money went? Well, the money went to major contractors. For example, let's give you an example. Shell Group received over $600 million no-bid contracts to put those blue tops on your house. How much do you think those blue tops cost a piece? I don't know. You tell me. $35. Mm-hmm. They charged the federal government $2,500 for each blue top to put on the house. Wow. The person who brought water in here and coolers after Katrina, he received a contract of $1,700,000,000. After people had left this city, they hired a company called AmeriCorps to provide water and, and coolers for the public, I guess, for the bodies that was lost in Hurricane Katrina. Also, too, they had a, com- a company in Kenya. They received $1,200, $12,000 to pick up bodies that was in the water. 
these are some of the things that they hot in their head from the public. But we cannot expect them, uh, the print media to put this in their newspapers to educate the people who really got the money. That was a contract for $45 million to, reduce, to remove cars that was flooded out from Hurricane Katrina. Now, they're not going to tell you who those individuals uh, are, but they're going to deal with emotionalism and show you pictures of people being uh, uh, held in, 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 in insecure places, people who are suffering during Katrina, but they never write an article about who received the money around Katrina. And this is something we've got to begin to look at. Who actually received the money for, for cleanup? Ask Britt received the contract, $500 million, to pick up debris. But they bundled those contracts to make sure local contracts could not get the contract. They bundled those contracts. made them very large. So that's how we systematically exclude local people, by bundling contracts. That's, that's an old game. And we hit those things. So I'd like to thank you for giving me the time to speak. Thank, thank you. you, Carl. And I think you've raised a very important point um, and, and, and something that we, uh, um, we, we definitely have um, talked about, people have talked about from the beginning, that uh, a lot of the early contracting work in the city did go to um, out-of-town contractors. Um, and also it was um, ironic that... Um, uh, there was a lot of construction work to be done, and we wound up with uh, new people coming in to do that work rather than our own uh, population returning to do it. I still don't really understand the dynamics of how that happened. It was um, it was uh, it was one of the one of the more bizarre aspects of the the storm that we wound up with a lot of people. Now those folks are hardworking folks, and they're staying in the city, and they've helped us repopulate. But um, at the same time, again, some of the uh, skilled Workers that uh, were part of our city, a part of our population, did not get to uh, be a part of the rebuilding of the city. And um, again, 2609265, um, if you had an experience or you have an issue such as Carl just raised, um, I welcome your calls. Now, so despite uh, the, the difficulties that, that he is citing, I, I still have to get back to uh, talking about some of the, um, you know, I, the, the thing is, the reason I focus on the cultural is because this is such a key part of our economy, and it's been so hard to really get that message across to people who think of the arts as something that's for somebody else and not understand that it's such a core part of our economy. So many of our young folks in this town have talent, and they've had to leave here and go someplace else to to really um, fulfill their opportunities. And, and uh, what we try to do is, is try to encourage that to happen here. So one of the things that we do is we do these exhibitions and we do performances. And um, we have a, a, a really um, an exciting uh, a series of events that um, it's true from Carl's perspective, maybe they are uh, celebrating more than they are um, calling attention to some of the misdeeds. But um, there are things to celebrate as well. This I mentioned the um, uh, People's Mural Show that's up at the Myrtle Bank School building. A lot of people don't seem to understand where that is. It's a big school building right on O.C. Haley that burned almost to the ground, and the developer 
went ahead with that project despite losing most of the infrastructure of that building. So um, they rebuilt it. It's gorgeous. There's a, a co-working space on the third floor. That's where the gallery that we've put together, we call it a creative space. On the ground floor, they're going to have a grocery, and it's taken a long time for the grocery to get open, but you got people who've been basically providers learning how to be retailers, and so it's taken them a little bit longer. But it's going to be very cool. It's going to be a great public market, so we're looking forward to that. Um, I hope um, that the the second of our events is a little further down that you'll some of you consider coming and seeing that too, because while we focus more on New Orleans and what happened in uh, right in Orleans Parish. St. Bernard Parish was hit very, very hard, too, and they had to bootstrap to bring themselves back, and a lot of their people also were not able to return. They simply couldn't afford the rebuilding. That's kind of a theme of of those who could not come back. Um, a, a, a big part of the reason for it was their inability to come up with the money to rebuild those who did come back were also people who couldn't afford to leave. So um, it's, 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 a, it's a complicated landscape of, of what happened. But um, the, uh, the education system, the people who had to rebuild the infrastructure, they came back. And so uh, next week, all week long, St. Bernard Parish is having an open house, and they're inviting people to come and see the things that have been happening down there. Um, I uh, have been working with um, Sidney Torres and uh, Roberta Burns have a trust and they have a, a, a new museum down there, a new art center called the River House. And it's right next to a pond that was created by an old crevasse earlier in the century, 1922. There was a big um, uh, natural crevasse, a breach, a, a break in the levee, and the water rush it, rushed in. It flooded St. Bernard, and it, and it turned what was a bayou into a little pond. And right next to that is where we put up a sculpture garden last year, and the sculptures are all about this whole issue of the interchange uh, between the um, uh, issues of... Um, our, um, uh, our, 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 the dangers, the risks and the dangers to, um, us from nature, but also the resources of nature and how important it is for us to protect them. So, um, we're putting on a show celebrating the people of St. Bernard. We did something about the landscapes and nature, uh, earlier in the year, and now we're doing a show that is called The Spirit of the People of St. Bernard. And it's portraits, still portraits, and video interviews that I've been conducting for the past several weeks with various people, uh, there. And I guess one of the things they talk a lot about is place, a sense of place, and why they kept coming back into St. Bernard, which has its risks. It has better protection than it's had before. Some parts of it and some parts of it are really still kind of evaporating as the coastal areas of the city um, uh, continue to erode for all kinds of reasons. But it's a beautiful show. It's, it's again, portraits and, and uh, um, really a very moving uh, uh, remarks from people down there. So I encourage you to think about coming down. The opening is Wednesday night at 4 o'clock from 4 to about 6. There's going to be refreshments. It's going to be a, 
um, a very uh, special moment, I think, with some of the people who are in the portraits and in the interviews being there as well. Plus, we're going to have kind of an open camera, and you can come in and you can add your thoughts and comments to the discussion, and I, I really encourage you to do that. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is our Ninth Ward Improv Opera, and we're going to be doing that on um, Thursday night in the old St. Maurice Church. It's a deconsecrated church. It's a beautiful old church. It needs a little work, but it's just gorgeous, and it's a fabulous backdrop for this incredible um, production of that's done by local performers and citizens from the area. Um, and there's a video of it. You can go on. If you go to Cano, hyphen la.org you can see a video of the first performance we did earlier in the year and i think once you see that you'll be persuaded that you should come and it's so cheap it's only twelve dollars and um, we look forward to uh, folks coming to that too now um, gia hamilton is with us she's the director of the joan mitchell Foundation's Center on Bayou Road, walking distance from the radio station. Did you walk? No. I didn't. It, could I have, wish it may rain I, any minute. I, I could have walked. That's no, true. well, you might have been caught in the rain on the way back. So, I mean, I brought my, my raincoat in just in case. But this is a very big moment, again, because this all came about as a result of the storm. The, the storm brought the Joan Mitchell Foundation she had just uh, recently um i don't when did she actually pass do you do you know in in 92 so in 92. The, yeah so the foundation was set up um after Joan's death, but she she actually talked a lot about uh, support to artists, and that's really the way in which she wanted the foundation to be set up, which is very artist-centered, and I think um, our programs um, really showcase that. Um, You know, we're really focused on sort of both grants to artists, but not just money, um, education um, opportunities and resources, and we feel like, you know, the the Joan Mitchell Center is really one of those resources for artists. And, uh, you know, so... um, Um, What happens is uh, the storm happens just about the time when the foundation has gotten itself established Mm -hmm. and um, the the funds become available. And at the same time that that happens, Katrina comes. And the organization feels that it's important to help the artists of New Orleans, comes down here, supports um, temporary sculpture show all around the city, which was yes. really important and, and part of kind of a whole move to um, to see more public sculptures develop around the city. And I happen to remember this very well because I, I, I brought your then director um, yes. over to Bayou Road to show um, her the um, the site that it was then called the House on Bayou Road. It was a and b and it was a beautiful old plantation house. She fell in love with it and said, yeah, she what, loved it. what a great place, the whole area, because it had quite a bit of property around it left over from the plantation. What a great spot to do a um, retreat for artists that will enable them to really explore new ideas in their work. So 
now, how many years has it been since that time? Yeah, so we purchased the property um, in 2010, and there's been sort of both acquisition of property along um, Rochablave, but also the development of the brand new studios in the back of the property, as you mentioned, 8,000 square foot studios um, that we're really proud of. We have 10 studios that range from about 350 square feet to about uh, 800 square feet with a digital media lab for those artists. So it really feels like a campus. And I have to say, in just working through the site development, there is this wonderful blend of both, you know, historic New Orleans architecture with the sort of contemporary feel. So it's 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 been a process of five years of piloting programs, really working with the site team, with uh, Lee Ledbetter and Associates, Office of Jonathan Tate, Black Men of Labor, just a lot of people that came together to really think through how to make this site uh, work in a residential neighborhood, as well as how to work with our neighbors, you you all being one of them. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're, we're, I'm just around the block. So, But um, I think what's really interesting is that while you were working on that very demanding project, and it wasn't easy because you're talking, anytime you talk about putting contemporary structures in the middle of an historic district, there are folks who don't understand that an historic district does not preclude contemporary architecture, and it does not call for you to just copy what was there before. It really celebrates what was there before, right. but also invites new ideas. So but it's not an easy it's not an easy road. It's not it's not easy at all and I think, you know, um kudos to our board for being really committed to um entering into a community in the proper way. Um and I think there are lots of lessons that were learned along the way. Um one of the things that we learned is just in a residential neighborhood, it's essential to get to know your neighbors. Um and so um with my background in community organizing, we sort of use that methodology to get to know our neighbors and actually door knocked talk to people, and then created programming that would allow neighbors to have a place to come and get to know the staff, understand the process, and, the, and, and actually the project that was happening. So we have a community coffee that we host every month that's just a general open house, and we've really encouraged our neighbors to come. You know, we write handwritten notes and make sure that we're attending things that they um, invite us to. So again, this idea of um, really being a part of a neighborhood was essential to the success of of the Joan Mitchell Center. And so here we go. So first of all, we're working on the construction. Working on construction, yes. Secondly, <laughs> we're working on communicating with the neighborhood. Yes. Thirdly, you were doing... Um, exhibition programming during all this time too, and this is what floored me when when I started seeing the um, the exhibitions that you were doing with artists around town. And even if I'm not mistaken, correct me, didn't you also have a couple um, sort of preliminary retreats for artists on, uh, on the site while you're doing your construction and your planning? Yes, I mean, there's been a lot going on. There's been a lot. It's been a really sort of layered process, which I think is actually, it, it worked well in hindsight. So we ran a number of pilot programs. We ran a program in the beginning of 2013 that invited Joan Mitchell Foundation recipients um, who are really spread out across the country to apply for this opportunity. And it's about 900 artists, um, about 12 of them living here in Louisiana. And 24 were selected for this program. It was a one-month residency. They were invited to live on site and work off-site at the studios that we were renting at the time. 
And it gave our staff the, the chance to really understand what it meant to have people on site 24 hours a day and what the needs of artists actually are and ask actually the best ways to sort of help artists understand New Orleans um, and sort of what was happening. And so we ran that program, super successful. Um, we were really delighted to work with artists like Samantha Wall, who came back a year later and had a solo show with Stella Jones Gallery. Um, so again, these connections sort of continue to blossom and, and flourish for the artists, but also for, uh, for us, you know, and, and our sort of partnerships. And then um, I came on as director in the, in the summer of 2013, and really my interest was in understanding the unique needs of local artists, in particular the, the sort of emerging artist community. Um, and so we launched the New Orleans Local Artist Studio Program with this idea of um, both offering studio space, offering time and space for artists to work, um, a stipend as well as professional development support. And, um, you know, I've talked a lot about the 10 artists that we work with, but they were really stellar. They really uh, represent the city of New Orleans, everyone from Katrina Andry, Carl Joe Williams, Aaron Collier, Nora Lovell, um, Io Scott. So, again, this, this variety of people who really have, um, you know, these really rooted ties to the city. They've either, they're a native or they've decided to really make New Orleans home and invest, you know, their lives in the city. So, again, construction. Construction. <laughs> and community engagement. Yes. And exhibitions and the beginnings of the retreat. So, with all that going on, um, now we have the actual grand opening of... With the actual grand opening of the Joan Mitchell Center. So, um, you know, the grand opening is happening Saturday, this Saturday, August 22nd, uh, from 3 to 5 p.m. at the Joan Mitchell Center which is located at 2275 Bayou Road, right on the corner of um, North Rochablave in the 7th Ward. And I think... Just down the street from Pagoda. That's just down the street from Pagoda <laughs> as our, as our to know the landmark area. city, right? right. We, we go by landmark. And they just, it looks like they've just reopened, so that's pretty cool. They did, just last week. Um, and this is really an opportunity to show people what we've been working on for the past year and a half, but actually to show them what, what we've been envisioning and imagining over the past five years. So um, we'll be giving tours. We have board members that are coming down from New York. Uh, Ron Bechet, who's our local uh, representative of the board, will be with us. Uh, Krista Blatchford, our CEO, will be with us. So it's a real opportunity for people to understand the foundation and um, and how the, the center really plays an integral role role in the foundation's mission. Um, and so we are hoping to engage and talk to artists and have artists leading tours and talking about their experiences um, so that, again, we're sort of reverberating this idea that artists are really central to the work that we're doing. Um, tell me about the idea of a retreat. I think that's something that a lot of people don't really um, understand, why that's so valuable for artists. And um, you know what? T let me just take a call for just a second, um, and, and we'll continue. Hi, Ms. Cheryl. How y'all doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm um, not so good. All right. Why not? I'm one of the 
been victims. Uh, you know how they say you owe FEMA the $2,000 back because of duplicate application? Because I was fighting housing before the storm, and Laura Tuggle with Legal Aid told me in 2012 that I won my case before the storm. And I came back in September of 2005, and I went down the house, and that was on Merle Street. And I'm like, okay, I go in, and this lady named Ms. Bowman tells me, oh, Ms. Valerie, we made a mistake. I'm like, what? I had the application for the house, about the place to stay and everything. Man, all of a sudden, this lady just pulled that thing up in front of my face. She said, well, Laura Tuggle didn't tell you one, did she? I'm like, well, I'll be. I said, no one y'all got security in there. But anyhow, I'm still fighting the system, okay? It's not It's not just housing. I just got retired. Uh, uh, retirement is $153. Uh, my Social Security used to be seven eleven. But this judge um, from T90-something, there was overpayments. I requested a hearing, and there was never a hearing. So then there was another overpayment. They told me I, I, I waivered that one. They waivered that one, the 13000 2004. And I'm like, okay, so why are you taking my money now? I, I'm living off of 300 for the last two weeks, $353. Guess what my birthday was? I was born on the third month of 53. So this judge is really playing. Oh, this is a lifetime job that these judges have? My brother-in-law, Cody Reed, left New Orleans, Louisiana, went to St. Louis, Missouri. Not only did he get his VA benefits, he got his disability and a house. So why are we still here fighting for what we know we ain't going to get? Yeah, you know, back recovery, recovery. You still got people living in mold and mildew. What happened to those damn contractors? They supposed to go after those people. You got these people suffering that with utilities. They can't even turn on uh, wall sockets on one side of the wall and stuff like that. And the house is sinking and stuff like. I mean, they didn't do nothing. You got the same car you was born with, the same turtle that you was born with. Same baseball you was born with. You know, you tell me what kind of money that was. And I got friends that had to. They sold, they they paid off their mortgage, then they had to go get a loan. Now they in debt because they didn't get the money that they were supposed to get. FEMA didn't give them nothing. And then uh, me being my friend of my house, that man had a contract for anybody got hurt on his property, $100,000. I call an insurance company, they tell me, oh, we got we to gotta, uh, split our contents. I lost everything. My stuff, everything I had was in his house. My grandfather clock, all my furniture, my sofa, my bed, my, even my three-wheel bike. I ain't got nothing. Everything I got in this house belongs to somebody else. So y'all tell me, how, how am I supposed to celebrate? Uh, and right now, my rent, my rent is higher than my income. You know, I'm, I'm paying, I mean, out of 350 you got a utility bill, you know, that's 200 and something dollars a month. You levelized bill, and I'm working in it. Well, uh, TCA got the weatherization people coming in to help me out on that one. I ain't worried about that. But in the meantime, my income with housing and citizen according to the $353 a month, these people got me paying $156 a month on my income. I'm like, what the hell is that?
still people. We got three parts of Holly Grove, then you got Gertile that's still a part of Holly Grove. I'm like, I am sick and tired of people separating us. We are in the 17th ward, okay? 17th Street Canal. We are still struggling. Those people did not do the motor mediation. There's so many people living like that. And that's not right. So fix it. If legacy, Miss Obama, your legacy is to fix New Orleans, what George Bush didn't fit. And Blanco, she didn't do what she's supposed to do either. Talk to y'all later. Y'all be blessed. Cheryl, um, thank you for the reality check. There's it's a big time check, bro. Big it's time, and uh, I that. appreciate I it. Friend, I just hung out with him. He said he had seizures when he was a kid, and he had words, but now he's having them again. So scared him to deny him and deny me. It's because we are African-Americans, and we ain't supposed to get this stuff. No, we never knew nothing about housing. I mean, my kids was raised on my income. I never had a Section 8 voucher program. My ex-husband's brother, Larry Jones, was had a hell. He told my whole family, I said, bro, my last name is Valerie, not Edwards. I done divorced a man a long time ago. I needed help, you know. Here I am, a grown woman. I've been on housing maybe, what, two, three years now? I just got it again, and they still not doing it right. Uh, you know, sure. How do you work the system? They sure. need to find somebody that know what the hell they're doing. Yeah. I'll talk to y'all later, babe. I'm sorry. All right. Do me a favor. Would you please uh, call me if you can still hear me? Uh, call me after the show. I just want to talk to you a little bit more about this. Um, yeah, that that is the um, other side. That is the other side Absolutely. of Absolutely. of this uh, situation. And, and uh, there, uh, I, I don't blame her one bit for her anger and frustration. And this is what a lot of people have gone through. <clears throat> whether they came back or they're gone. And she came back. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing. She came back, and, she, and she's going through this. So it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a sad story to hear. And um, I wish I had the answer. And I, I think to some extent, um, you know, uh, that there's a little bit of a, of a tendency in this whole week to try to say, oh, we're moving forward. It's over. And, and as she made very clear, it is not over. And as Carl Galman, I don't know if you heard him on the show before, but he was talking about, you know, the um, all of the money that was spent that went to out-of-town contractors in the beginning. And that's kind of a – that's water under the bridge, so to speak. It's not coming back, but it's it's not – it wasn't the way it should have happened, and uh, we. And I hope that you know one I, of the I things that uh, I, I know. That the censor has really, yeah. I, I, I was going to say the artists of the city ha- ha- are reflecting this experience, these experiences in their work. So I don't want anybody to think that you know all we are uh, talking about is is a sweet culture. We're talking about work that often is reflecting the anger and experiences that she's been through, and we're going to talk about that later in the show too. Absolutely, and and I think. Um, I really I appreciate that comment as as a native of New Orleans coming home and and really acting as a, a translator and a conductor of resources to the city of New Orleans. Um, I talk a lot about the fact that it's a it's a fairly isolating role to both have to really understand the ground and to be able to communicate with uh, with funders with organizations that need to partner and truly understand the stories and the the vast majority of the stories that are still um, struggling with how to recover from the hurricane, um, you know, it it means that there's an accountability and and a level of integrity that I have to um, embed in every decision that I make. And I take that really seriously in my role. And so one of the things that I can actually highlight, you mentioned construction, is that um, it was very important for me to implement a workforce development program during this site development. And so for me, what that meant, again, as an organizer, is that we were employing men and women in our neighborhood. 
um, that we were understanding who wanted work, who wanted to understand what we were doing um, and, and, and what the resources were in the seventh ward. Um, and so we worked, again, I mentioned with black men of labor, to really assess the skills of men and women who were interested in in working. We partnered with Community Book Center to to sort of put on job readiness workshops and really prepare those men and women for interviews with the contractors that we were working with. So that was wow. an integral part that's, of uh, that's addressing my work all the for the 18 months. Normal impediments to people getting work. That's right. right. And, and, and I have to say, you I know, didn't know you did that. One of the things that it requires is that you have a leader so that you don't just make those statements, but that you have a leader and you have staff that actually uh, work to make sure that contractors understand the necessity and that it is essential and that this is a part of the project. So we were able to hire 10 men from a one-mile radius of the of, of the seventh ward to work on the project. But on top of that, that's sort of, that's not enough, right? I mean, it's always thinking about how do we expand on these ideas. So our programmatic staff has really been challenged with this idea um, of how do we incorporate the talent that we have in this neighborhood into the programs that we're running. And so I'm, I'm proud that it's a, it's a small start, but everyone on staff is really motivated. We've hired 12 people who have been videographers, editors, photographers, um, event support, all from within our neighborhood. Um, and so that's not to really isolate anyone else to say we, we're not interested in working outside of the 7th Ward. It's to prioritize the neighborhood that we're in and to make a very clear statement of being rooted in, in the 7th Ward. Okay, so grand opening Saturday. Grand to- opening Saturday. At- 3 p.m. 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. I'm sure refreshments, knowing refreshments. you guys are very hospitable and it's such a beautiful place, so everybody can really enjoy it. What happens after grand opening? What? This is a demarcation. Now what? Now what? I think uh, we get the opportunity to pull together all of the different pilot programs that we've been running into this one, what I would consider highly dynamic environment, which includes local artists. Um, proud to announce the local artist, Paul Wright, who is a graduate of Yaya, um, young painter, installation artist here. Miro Hoffman, who's a graduate of NOCA, um, and also a painter and urban farmer. And Cecilia Givens, who is a painter, a photographer, as well as a, an educator in our city. So they get the opportunity to really have these studios for five months um, and really kind of act as ambassadors of that space and welcoming in artists from all over the country who will be joining us. So we have a number of public programs. We'll continue with the community coffee. Um, We're bringing back the visual mashup, which is our sort of evening happy hour event that allows visual community to present work test out ideas, network, and meet each other. And then we will have our annual town hall October 24th, uh, where we're partnering with LCCR, Louisiana Center for Children's Rights. Um, And the theme this year is really art and social justice. So we're very interested in how art plays a role in the work of making our city, our world, more uh, equitable. And so it's going to be... um, I think, a, a really exciting season for us. Tell, tell me just a little bit more about that notion. I'm interested to hear how, you, how you're doing, how you're interpreting that. Art and social justice. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're thinking about ways in which artists work in the communities that they're in. Um, I, I think it's, it's an interesting notion that we're both an urban residency, but that we have about two acres of property. So there's this opportunity to both sort of retreat 
um, and have time and space. And I think what we all realize is that all humans uh, need and deserve time and space to um, recalibrate their brains, their bodies, their souls, their spirits, um, to reimagine their lives. Um, and, and we've offered this opportunity to artists, understanding that artists really um, are not in a bubble. They function in communities, and they, and they wear different hats, and they play different roles in their communities, and that we want to sort of honor all aspects of uh, what it means to be an artist. And so partnering with a non-arts-based institution for us is an experiment. It's really a social experiment to understand how we can better uh, do this work together across sector and across industry. And I think you, through Cano and the work that you've done with Creative Industries, I think you're, you're that person who kind of lights that fire a lot. So I, 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 That's why I wanted to hear more yeah. about it, because I, I, that is an, always an, an objective, and you don't always feel like you're accomplishing it so hard to. I mean, social equity, is a that's a, that's a century-long process that's going to take to make that happen, but um, you, you do try to chip away at it. So um, that's great. Gia Hamilton has been talking. She has um, this great homestead, uh, you might call it, on Bayou Road, and um, I think this is going to be a very exciting moment on Saturday um, to celebrate uh, the accomplishment of getting this center up and open and ready for both the world and for us locally. Thanks but for we, us. yeah, Thanks. and and you can hang in here and, and hear a little bit about the the Loving Festival, which is how many years now has this been going on? About three? Is it four? Um, actually, you're I'm not sure. No, it's funny because the Loving <laughs> Festival has been one of our partners. Yeah, yes. So that's that's a kismet. That's uh-huh. great. I know it's been at least a couple of years. Yeah, um, and then I've, it was. Go ahead. Uh, I've, I've actually, we, we've had folks here before talking about it, but it's such a great and warm and heartfelt concept for a festival. So um, introduce yourself. Tell, tell us just a little bit who, about who you are and what you're doing, and tell us about the festival. Wonderful. Um, my name is Che, and I'm here bringing a project called Hashtag Dignity in Process to New Orleans. So actually found out about the Loving Festival through um, someone who actually found me on Facebook. It was sort of a serendipitous moment. That's fascinating. I'm just amazed <laughs> at what Facebook can do for all of us these days. I still am not really a heavy Facebook person, but I'm, I'm trying to get on there. Yeah, I, well, and it was it was really quite perfect because the project is called Hashtag Dignity and Process, so it's really kind of playing with the power of social media mm-hmm. in social justice movements at this moment, particularly for underrepresented communities, thinking of what happened in Egypt with the revolution and how similar things are happening through the usage of social media for the black community in America. So I was doing um, a workshop series called Mixed in the Movement at California College of the Arts in Oakland, um, and I had posted an event page on my Facebook, and someone actually from New Orleans reached out to me and was reading the description and was like, you really need to bring this here. We, you know, we really need conversations about mixed race identity, and it can actually get quite heated and the language that we have to talk about mixed race identity here is so different um, and layered and complex and I just that had been something that had really been on my mind um, for a while about how to start to broaden the conversation of what um, of what is mixed race identity across the nation Um, and then of course this person let me know about the Loving Festival. Mm -hmm. And so they said, well, you should really bring this work here and you should connect with these people. They also put a little um, link out there for Press Street Gallery, which is actually where I ended up being hosted um, as a resident currently. 
And yeah, so I found out about the Loving Festival through the magic of Facebook, which I clicked on the link and it told me all about how um, it's a festival that really celebrates the diversity of families um, and really ending racial stereotypes and hierarchies through looking at the Loving's family, which was, of course, one of the first um, interracial marriages in the U.S. So. Well, uh, uh, you say of course, but of course, of course, not everybody <laughs> in the audience really knows about that. Right. And I think it's a very important uh, part of the history to uh, recall. So if you right. might set the stage, tell us about that, and then uh, I want to know more about uh, the performance that you're doing, D- Dignity and Process, and what that's going to be all about. So let's sure. start with the loving sure. um, family. Mm-hmm. So it was based off of the 1967 landmark civil rights lawsuit, Loving versus Virginia, um, to end race-based legal restrictions on marriage in the U.S. Um, and it, it really honors the legacy of Richard and Mildred Loving, um, who were the interracial couple that were looking to get married at that time. And so the festival... And at that time, it was illegal. It was completely illegal. Um, it was, of course, still happening, but many couples were facing violent retributions from, you know, the state. So it was a very challenging time. And I think it's important that we continue to talk about that moment um, at this time, because at this moment, when we're looking at the Black Lives Matter movement, there have been a lot of conversations around how um, aspects of racism are expressed today, not necessarily in these very forward and poignant moments where we're seeing police brutality happening on the landscape of America every day, but also there are these microaggressions that occur um, because of multiracial marriages um, and overlap of different racial communities. So so your performance. Yes. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, it's called Hashtag Dignity and Process, which is a pretty large platform that looks at black leadership Um, creating models for sustainable black leadership across the country and actually challenging um, previous ways that we as a black community were able to become leaders. And so looking at how our ancestors have actually had these healing practices and modalities that we can really draw from um, and integrate those into our activist models. So rather than recreating um, an experience of burnout um, and just working ourselves, like running ourselves into the ground, that we actually want to draw on this rich lineage that we have. Um, and so, how can we integrate that into how we lead? How can we integrate that into the current movement, Black Lives Matter? And then, of course, the arts have been a huge place where resilience has found its way into the Black community in America, thinking about the music. Um, that came out of slavery that, of course, got people through and actually became songs of freedom and messages to get people to freedom. Um, And so there are all these ways that art and music and spirituality have been really this underground subversive tactic for black people to find their dignity, which I believe is a very powerful um, stance and and weapon against anything that is pushing against love. And so that's really what the work is about. And that actually happens through um, a series of things. So I do the workshops mixed in the movement, um, which I take to different universities and organizations to allow folks that are just community members to really get to talk about multiracial identity, talk about intersectional identity, whether it's overlapping of gender and race, 
um, and how they can feel more whole and integrated at this moment when many of us, I, I believe everyone has some sort of intersectional identity um, that they carry with them into a space that we just might not always talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Mix in the Movement workshops, and then there are the performance series that happen. So there are site-specific performances that happen all over the country where um, at sites where particular historical moments have occurred, or it could be a place where people of the African diaspora have been very present and maybe their community is getting pushed out. Um, or, for example, in Congo Square, I'm doing a performance on the 30th, a place where obviously communities of the African diaspora, many tribes across the African diaspora have shared in ritual together. And so actually taking the time to celebrate that space and bring the community to a space um, that richly deserves to be highlighted and honored. What what to, uh, the Congo Square performance, when exactly is that? What time? Sure, that is August 30th. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and August 30th would be Monday, uh, Sunday, rather. Sunday, yeah. that's uh-huh. correct. Yes, also a part of the Gulf uh, South Rising event, the Katrina 10-year anniversary, um, which I am calling a memorial in remembrance because I know it's it's challenging to talk about it as a celebration. Right. And um, the other so the and the workshop is basically is that what's on August 22nd at. Uh, Cafe Istanbul. The workshop is actually has been happening. Um, started last this last Monday, the seventeenth, and that was at Ashe Cultural Arts Center. Um, and then the following one, it's a two-part workshop series, and people are welcome to attend the second half, which is this coming Monday, and again is from six to eight. There's a dinner provided, and um, we'll be doing many fun theater activities, movement, song, and then the twenty-second this Saturday is the performance of North-South, hashtag Dignity and Process, which is at Cafe Istanbul. You are doing a lot, <laughs> and we deserve it. And Well, at, 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 let me put it this way. We are grateful for it. And um, I think the best, uh, there's a lot, so mm-hmm. uh, probably the best thing is for people to go to your website. And would the, would the um, Loving Festival website have all this, or yes. do they need to go to chelsea.elizabeth.w at gmail.com? If they would That's like... your email, and emailing you and ask you to maybe send them a link, or how, do, how, how, how what is the easiest way for people to really kind of get their arms around all of this? Because yeah, sure. that's a lot. <laughs> so um, if you go to the Loving Festival um, website, which I believe is the lovingfestival.org. Yeah. yeah, or just lovingfestival.org. No, the, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you can find all of the information for the show, um, as well as updates about the workshops, as well as random little tidbits about my time here in New Orleans. Um, and if you would like to reach out to me personally, I'm always looking for ways to continue to bring this workplaces. Um, so my email for that is Chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A dot Elizabeth with an S, E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H dot W at gmail dot com. So, you know, we don't always have you here. Where, where do you actually live? I'm based in Oakland. Oakland. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to uh, milk this a little bit. I, I can't resist uh, because you're <laughs> obviously a, a very thoughtful person, uh, multi-talented. How did you get started in all this? And, and, and tell mm-hmm. me a, a little bit about your, your sort of the path that you that you walk to get where you are and what you're doing. That's a huge question. <laughs> well, um, I guess I would have to start with um, coming from a interracial family. 
So um, my mom is is white um, with some Native American mixed in our family lineage. Um, Almost everybody in America has some of that. Exactly, which is why I'm doing <laughs> this Especially work. in the South, I've noticed that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and then my is father. Is she from the South originally? She's not. She's no. from California. Okay. Um, my, on my father's side, um, black and Native American with roots in the South. Um, and on my father's side, it's very layered and complicated. The storytelling on that side of my family is really fascinating because everybody has different stories. Like many American families, I'm sure, they're sort of competing ideas of um, where folks came from and what actually happened with different marriages and kids. And it's, it's layered and fascinating. And so I think for me... Um, this work started a long time ago when I really was starting to ask my family questions. My parents were divorced, and so um, it was just really interesting to ask my father questions about where our people came from um, because my family, there's a lot of diversity in what my family looks like, mm-hmm. um, and we just didn't ever talk about it. Um, and so I found really, out... Really, you didn't talk about it. Right. Well, I mean, we talked about it in that it was obvious, you know, I was a biracial well, was told I was a biracial child. Um, Not really biracial, because that implies only two races when really there's a whole mix of communities in me. Multiracial. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, but so I just kept asking questions because I wanted to know what that meant because people would often ask me as my white grandparents dropped me off at school, like if I was adopted. And I just thought that was the silliest thing at the time because I didn't, I didn't understand what it meant to have my skin color, to have my texture of hair, um, and to not be spending um, as much time as I would have liked at that that moment in my life with my black family to actually contextualize what it meant to look like me with a white family. Um, And I saw that actually happening a lot as I got older with other peers of mine who were mixed race. There's a lot of, um, you kind of have to choose, you know, you have to decide who, which side you're on, um, who you're going to identify with, um, or there's, of course, the exotification that happens. Um, I've been told, or I've been, people guess a lot of, what are you? You know, I've gotten all kinds of answers. So, anyways, all of that. You know, I just want to say, um, I'm sorry, I don't mean to no, interrupt okay. you, but um, I'm half Jewish and half Catholic. Mm-hmm. So I'm all white. Maybe. Who knows? Because you, when you do your DNA, all kinds of things pop up in your DNA. But um, being half and half of just those two religions mm-hmm. was a challenge for me growing up. Mm. Because um, I, I always joke that my Jewish boyfriend's mothers would call me Kathy. <laughs> because to them, I was a no-no. I was I was a Christian, or mm. as uh, Jewish families, there's a derogatory term. Um, it's not really a derogatory term, but I, t- I took it that way. It's called, what is it? What is that word? Um, goyim. Mm. Goyim. Goyim is not Jewish, right? And then um, on, on, the, on the Catholic side, because my affect, you were saying you, you choose. Maybe you don't choose, but you have a tendency to be lo- more like one parent or the other. And I'm definitely more like my father than mm. my mother, although... I did get what little discipline I have from my mother. Mm. <laughs> that was important. Mm-hmm. But um, that was that was hard enough. And mm. I, I, I never did choose, quite frankly. Right. I, I really, what it did for me, and I'm not sure if this is true for you, maybe, it, it made me walk a line between. So I'm always living in a world that is not this or that. Mm. I, I walk, I, I walk in a, in a, 
diverse world. I really do. In 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 all respects, uh, including um, racial and and ethnic and so religious and so on. I mean, I just when I go to a party, sometimes of a friend of mine who is of one homogeneous group, and everybody kind of looks like them, and say, God, how can they live in this world? Mm. When you go to my house, it's going to be everything. Mm. So how, how did you? literally make a choice or do you live in this world that I'm talking about this kind of all Mm. over the place everything world yeah I think like identity for me I see it as um, constantly changing and evolving so I think it's different every moment Um, but yeah I mean I think as a as a child it definitely there were moments I can actually mark moments throughout my life when I actually felt the need to choose because of the social pressure. Um, And I think that's sort of the racial and cultural piece that starts to weave in there of um, we live in a racialized country. And so um, having, you know, black kids actually be asking me questions like, well, what are you? And like uh, lots of dialogue. You said black kids. So more black kids would ask you than white? Um, I don't know if I can really track that. it was it was pretty much asked by everyone what I was, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely the pressure f- from multiple groups of whether I could be trusted, right? Because if mm. you're kind of standing at an intersection, it's where are your alliances um, is really the question. Um, and so now I think what a lot of the work is about is accepting that many of us stand at intersections and we all are standing at our own very particular place of power. Um, And so rather than seeing myself as a compilation of parts, which is how I first kind of started to think about multiracial identity is like, well, you know, people would often say, how is it to be half and half? And I was like, well, I'm not like, there's not a line down the middle of my body. Like I'm, I'm one person um, and I have my own whole experience. So I see myself as a whole person um, with a whole community. Um, and that being said, I still walk through the world and the world interacts with me as a black person. And so because that is the construct that this country is currently interacting with. And so that's also a part of my identity that I have to name um, and pay homage to. And yeah. I have to say, I'm sure Gia, who's been sitting patiently through our, this whole conversation, but um, I don't I, again, what you experience is a is a um, a real paradigm of this. But. All of us, right, are dealing with these these split identities because in, in the end, I mean, you know, Americans in general, we are such a mix. And that's what makes what this guy Trump is doing so profoundly retroactive and, and, and painful and stupid. He uses the word stupid a lot. I want to use the word stupid for a guy who has the nerve to say that we should send 11 million people who just happened to have a Latin last name out of the country. Um, I'm very excited about your work here, and um, I know you two will will chat, and you need (laughs) to go to the opening, the grand opening of the um, Joan Mitchell Center on Saturday at 3, and uh, we need to go to all of your performances. Uh, Cafe Istanbul, hello, Chuck Perkins entering next after me, owner of Cafe Istanbul, and my... Um, co-partner in so many things. Um, but don't forget about uh, our opera and our um, uh, people, the spirit of the people of St. Bernard on Wednesday night. And 
you know, there is a lot going on, but let's get through it. Let's just go do everything, and then we can take a break in September. And guess what? i got to take a break now because i got somebody staring at me saying, does she know it's two minutes out? Yes, I do. This is Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations, and I am getting off the air.